You're listening to the Irish Times. I come here this morning, Gav, to sing songs of Paul Mannion. Yeah, yeah, I like the line about the urchin army, one of them breaking free. <laughs> you can see it on the TV, the, the kid going to get his gloves in Parnell Park last night. Uh, Gavin Comiskey is here instead of Pat Nugent on the Out of Time podcast for the next few weeks. And I was working last night at the Dublin County Final and saw Paul Mannion. Just, I often think this sometimes, uh, when when you go to these club matches this time of year and the other time you just come across a, a top-class inter-county player playing at club level and it's nearly unfair. His man couldn't get near him now. Oh my God, God love him. Um, was uh, the Jude's full-back... Uh, did his manful best all night, but Mannion scored 1-6 from play. And I would say, I'd, I mean, I will never watch this game back, but if I did, I'd be interested to count how many seconds Mannion was in possession over the course of the night. Wasn't I'd it constant, s- was it? No. Oh, he just showed up and kicked. So it was oh. like seven times he got on the ball and seven scores. I would say it's no more than 12 times did he have the ball in his hands. So his efficiency was off the charts. Yeah, he didn't have a wide. I don't think he missed a shot. I think he scored one six from seven shots. But I'd say in total he had the ball in his hands for maybe 15 seconds over the course of the He's night. taking the piss though, even in the championship this year, playing, playing wing back, corner back mm. and like everything he That's did. That's it. No, he did read, he, he came back twice I think to tackle back but it's funny the the Crooks manager was saying afterwards that that's our thing uh, our, our main thing is to keep him close to goal and let him do it but th- like the efficiency was amazing his first two points were absolutely extraordinary just the he had them over the bar before his marker really had Patrick knew, knew no mug decent not yeah like he played for Kildare for a couple of years Kieran Fitzpatrick you know uh, um very famously got, got uh, a knee in the head from Dear McConnelly at one stage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was an accidental. <laughs> accidental, very accidental. And we We're going to be talking we about come here. We don't come here to introduce Dear McConnelly. We're going to be talking about Croaks and the dubs now, Neil, in a while. But yeah. um, it was very, um, uh, just watching, it looks like Croaks now who've, Poor old Jude's went and beat everyone and looked like they were going to finally win a Dublin Cleared title. Cleared the path for... Uh, for now Croke's Croke's probably going to go and win a Leinster in All-Ireland. Well, they want. Well, it'll be interesting to see because they have the they have the, the rougher end of the uh, the Leinster draw. They've Well, they've done, done Boyne next week, but I think Port Leash are on, on their side and, uh, and Murfield are on their side. So they'll have a, a bit to go yet to, to win Leinster. But uh, yeah, it was it was cool to, to be at a game and why yeah. Crooks won and of, and their, first, their first title since 2002. Yeah, that surprised me. But And of the dubs, it's Keen O'Sullivan, Mannion, there's a couple other fringe guys, but it's not It's not a Dublin pack. Oh, you wouldn't say it's star-studded, no. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, you know, Craig Davis played Diaz. That gives him a better chance of winning yeah. Leinster and all that. Exactly. Artists. He played, you know, he had a few years uh, for Dublin there. Pat Burke had a few years for Dublin and for Clare. So, they're, look, I know, it's a proper team. And they have a wing back there who I would imagine... We will be seeing Keen a bit O'Connor. more of Keane O'Connor, who is very, very sharp. But uh, yeah, it was good to see them. Uh, yeah, as you alluded to there, we'll have going to have an author, Neil Cotter, in later on to talk to us about his book, Dublin, The Chaos Years, about the, the years between 95 and 2011, when the dubs were uh, a bit of a laughing stock. Sad old times. Sad old times for you. I know you were a, a, a big supporter of them in those days. But first, it's uh, the November internationals are starting. This weekend, John O'Sullivan's in with us to chat up a storm. Although, possibly I should be calling you Jack McGrath, since uh, yes. that's the name, the byline that's on uh, one of your pieces this morning. Jack wrote it, didn't he? He's going to be very disappointed. I think he's got a better command of English than I have, so he'll probably <laughs> take offence to having his byline in the Irish Times. Hopefully everything is spelled correctly. 
Is he, is, he, is, he doing, is he writing about Keen Healy, is he? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Healy out. <laughs> uh, Italy on Saturday in Soldier Field at three o'clock to kick off the series. The squad was named uh, yesterday. Um, surprises, not surprises? What do you make of it? No, no, no real surprises. I think it's a match that um, they want to give some of the extended squad an opportunity to play, have a look at players, and, and really the, the two most important matches over the November Test Series are the Argentina game and the New Zealand game. So leaving the, some of the senior players at home was, was always going to be the case. And Italy have picked their team and announced it eight days ago or whatever it was, seven days ago. Yeah, Ian so. McKinley's going to play rugby against Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Finally, all the Columbus will be able to watch that. Yeah, is the is the more interesting side of it what this squad tells us about what the squads that are going to come? Yeah. So Schmidt, Schmidt loves these four games because he gets this extra one to go. Uh, he split the squad, so he has it looks, but it's never it's never simple with him. It, and if we just break, simply put, he's going to play the team, the squad that goes to Chicago. Will a lot of them we'll see again. In, uh, against USA at the end of November and he's got another little the, the bones of his team that plays against the All Blacks in Argentina are in Carton House now with a week run in preparing and I think Conor Murray's in there as well mm-hmm. we don't know if he's going to play and all that but he's I hear that he's in Carton House training away even taking full contact um, this team is quite is, is very interesting he did this again when you, that, that historic game when they went and beat the All Blacks in Soldier Field in November 2016 he left Peter Manny and Sean O'Brien at home mm. both of them who had put their hands up and said I'm fit and imagine telling the two of them he know, can't yeah. go. And the, the 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 genius of that was he goes to Jordy Murphy and Josh Van der Flyer. You're as good as those two. Now go prove it. Mm. And well, they they both put in like serious performances. So what he does is <clears throat> he's twisting. And ring rows and earls were held as well that time. And so it's the the, the favorite thing I, I like about watching Schmidt the coach is how he divvies up his resources and how he's built a squad because he couldn't go because like, the 2015 squad just wasn't good enough. So this one is um, this one is very very interesting. Ty Byrne, James Ryan, a furlong who I don't think will be used. These guys are all all in the mix for the big all, the All Black match. All we all we all we care about is the All Black game. It's funny. That's absolutely what I was about to say. Was that like this is a four game series and yet the the All Blacks match looms over it, John, like you know, like a skyscraper over the rest of them. Yeah, I think if if you look at it, obviously the the win in Chicago a couple of years ago was was brilliant, and it. it um, it uh, broke a, a losing sequence with one draw. Uh, so they're they're looking to win at home, basically. Mm. This will set the tone for, if you like, a world, we'll call it a World Cup year. Mm. Uh, and they want, it's the last time they'll play Southern Hemisphere opposition before they play in the World Cup. And they want to lay down a marker. They're playing at home. The pressure is on Ireland to a certain degree. It's one versus two in the world. It's a game that everybody wants to see based on ticket sales, certainly from an Irish perspective. <coughs> and ticket price. And ticket prices. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so from that perspective, yeah, everything, everything is focused on November the 17th. But obviously the Irish team management would tell you that they're taking it one game at a time. This is not a the All Blacks team that we've seen in the last few years. It's not as good. South Africa, South Africa who have not got their act together yet properly proved that. They proved that if you, if you, if you bash them on the great gain line, there's loads of little things that they show. Rassi Erasmus has given a video gift to Joe Schmidt. Uh, Chekhov's Wallabies are in absolute disarray. The Argentinians are so hot and cold that those victories are not as not as valuable for the All Blacks as they used to be. So, in many ways, Ireland should come, should be really in this game, and they should it should be very close. Um, the one thing Darcy's column tomorrow, as is edited there, is he's talked about this as if Schmidt would look at it as a club coach. He's got twelve games till the World Cup. 
Mm. And these are the these are these are three or four of the most valuable ones probably because you got to switch Six Nations is about winning and all that. And but this is when he's going to make. Um, we're going to see a lot of the stuff that we'll definitely see again when the World Cup comes along about how they attack because you only get one shot to have a go, have a cut off New Zealand, and they really have to. They'll show their hand to a, to a large extent, I think. John, how does the 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 2015 World Cup sort of inform what's happening now a year out from from next year's World Cup because. You know, we we got to to where we got to, and it was the, you know, the, it was the injuries. It was the mm-hmm. the lack of depth underneath those injuries. Sure. Is that what, is that what all the preparation now is about? A year out, that yeah, that, so. that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, I think so. I think with the numbers that you can take to to a World Cup in terms of a squad, that you have to try and get it right. You've got to be lucky with injuries. Ireland were unlucky in the last World yeah, Cup. You can't fix that. You can't fix five injuries. Yeah. Five of your best players getting injured in the week of a game. And one four injured. Yeah, but you can't throw your hands up either yeah. and just say... But if yeah, that happens you know. to New Zealand, they're not going to win the World Cup. They're going to get knocked out in the quarterfinals. Mm. It doesn't matter who you are. If that happens, that was just a freakish thing. Maybe the bodies the weren't... Maybe they had to examine the bodies of the players or something. Maybe if you look at the match in question, the Argentina match, Ireland were uh, out the door losing first 25 they got back into the game into a position to win the match and they just didn't have the legs and the quality to win it at the end of the day so uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss the they squad. didn't have a good enough team John did they they didn't but then if, if, if they had managed to win that match against the odds with five injured frontline players you know and got to a semi-final you probably would have been missing four of the five in the next match and, and that probably would have been a bridge too far at that point. But this is what I'm asking, actually. So are we in any better of a situation now? Could, could As you say, OK, that's a freakish example, five frontliners going. But if that happens this time next year, what sort of situation are we in? Well, he won't be picking. He he Even when he was down to bare bones, he refused to pick Luke Fitzgerald and Zebo for that game when he should have kind of... He could have gone. I don't think he has sleepless nights about that match because of the circumstances leading into it. Uh, but he could have gone gone for it with the two most stylish attacking players we've had in a generation. But he didn't. He left one on the bench and one off the squad. Um, this squad is. He has since then built a squad that is. He's aimed to be three deep in every position of international caliber player. He hasn't got there, but he's gotten. He's gotten as close as any Irish coach has ever got. Like let's go tight head, right? Tig Furlong. Uh, Porter, 1-2, international calibre. Marty Moore, if he gets his act together by the end of the season, has already proven himself to be international calibre. So he could have it by the time. You know, he could have it in every single position. Scrum half is so interesting in November now because we're told that Conor Murray won't be back until probably away to Zebra at the end of November. Although Ron Nogar and Steve Hansen are telling us otherwise. So we, do, we are going to examine, certainly this weekend in Chicago, uh, I presume Cooney plays because he's got the, the same Murray kind of place kicking thing and it takes the heat off Carberry. But either way, we're going to examine our scrum half stocks in a way that we've never done before, which is which is, which is important. Yeah, I think it probably makes more sense to play Luke McGrath and Ross Byrne as a, a pairing, right. or Ross Luke okay. Bar- Luke McGrath, sorry, and Joey Carberry, or what, whatever way you want to mix the halves because they play together. So what you're looking for is uh, a quick uh, unit skills. Who would you? Pick? I would pick Luke McGrath and Joey Carberry as the starting halves. Okay, yeah, and I bring John yeah. Cooney on, and I give them as much time as possible because what you have is there are 13 Test matches between now and the opening game in the World Cup. If you look at it in real terms, you're not going to ex- he's not going to experiment during the Six Nations Championship. The last two warm-up games are irrelevant because the squad's largely picked at that point. So what you're trying to do is is avoid injuries at that point. So the real opportunities are Saturday in Soldier Field and against the USA to look at the extended squad and mix and match and bring players in. It's interesting that Sammy Arnold and John Ryan went, having been selected in the 42, have gone to South Africa with Munster. 
uh, and, not, and are yeah. not included in. Tommy Ireland got an awful concussion. He did. Yeah, he got a belt. Yeah, absolutely, and was taken off. And, and I wonder see how Peter Manny is as well. That shoulder yeah. damage at the end of the game on the weekend. I'd be very interested to see how he turns up. Yeah, I don't think I don't. I'm not sure he has that depth. And I think if you look at it, sorry, going back to the 13 Test matches, the law of averages suggests you are going to lose. And sorry, including the rugby season domestically for clubs and provinces, you're going to lose probably four players mm. or five players from your from your squad. Who those players are will have a massive bearing. So to to answer your question, uh, it will depend on the players that Ireland lose. If Ireland lose players between now and the start of the World Cup, we're still, First the, same, all, we're still the same nation that if we if we lose our tight head, we lose our scrum half, we lose our right half, we're screwed. We're still that nation. Is that it? I I, I, I hope not because. Well, the whole point is, yes, of course, like Murray Sexton Furlong. Murray Sexton Furlong, fair enough. But look, Luke McGrath, Carberry, uh, Porter, like mm. they're going to be uh, potentially all world-class players. I don't think we're screwed. about Luke McGrath, but I he think, looks like he's can, he can... I think it'll be challenging. And I think that's why these matches are important. Mm. Because when you look at it, you say, right, okay, you've got to be able to, what Joe Schmidt wants is the players to be able to perform in test matches. And these are these are proving grounds. Uh, next Saturday's improving ground. Obviously, the two middle tests where you'll have a full uh, full side to select from. I, you know what I think? I can't wait to see the Argentina so. team, John, because I think he'll. It's almost the team that will play the All Blacks. You know how he does it. Mm-hmm. Like so, like James Ryan or Ty Byrne or something will play eighty minutes this weekend or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. So we won't see them, and we'll probably see them maybe for twenty minutes or he'll ease them back in. It's brilliant the way he t- picks teams. It's always every time you look at a Schmidt team, you always go, "Wow, that's the common sense there." <laughs> so that's something we used to never be used to. You know, it's. We, it's that's one of his key strengths. One other part of the squad that I was wondering about, uh, assuming assuming fitness, let's assume good health. Does Rob Carney start in the World Cup? He starts instead of him. Does Larmer start instead of him? No, no. Well, unless Larmer learns his positioning and his defensive stuff and all that, Larmer's just a freakish talent. So is that wonderful running running attack? Okay, player. then then in that regard, <clears throat> is that a worry? Like, is is does Rob Carney assume the importance of? No, we signed Will Addison, so he's going to actually kind of be looking like they're going to play him as a bit of a centre. But uh, literally, Nusafor and Schmidt went out and signed two players: Mike Haley, who's now the Munster fullback; mm-hmm. Will Addison, who is the centre. He's been playing a little bit in centre, so I think he's going to cover centre in Chicago or even get capped there. But he's also a fullback. These two are like made; they're literally signings. Going, oh, Irish grandmothers in you come. They're John Alders and Ray Houghton in you right. come into the into the into the gang into the group, lads. So no, fullback's fine. Rob Carney will just keep going. Okay, who's as long as he stays fit, Rob Carney starts fifteen mm. because he's got this ridiculous competitive streak mm. that he just sees off. Zebo came along and was turning it on, and Carney just brought his game to another level. Schmidt said it to him the day they beat the All Blacks in Chicago. Two years ago. He goes, this is it. here you go, yeah. right? You're done yeah. in my book if you don't. And he had his best game for Ireland. Yeah. And he's actually had better games since. Yeah. So as long as he keeps trucking along and he, he loves it, like everyone, so many people have written him off because he doesn't offload the ball. And <laughs> could be a couple of us in this room have even done it. <laughs> and uh, he just uses it, he just puts the fuel into his into his milkshake and goes on with his day. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, he's a, the whole cliche of him being a goalkeeper and all that, but like, Defensively, he's he's brought his, he's everything that like a Ben Smith and all is except he just doesn't have that lightning pace and that peripheral vision. But that's still a pretty good comparison. Mm. Key for Rob Carney is fitness. It's always been when Rob Carney was in into a team for two games, out for four games, into a team for three games, out for five games. He didn't have any form because he couldn't get form because as soon as he came back in and played a couple of matches and was trying to play his way back in, he was gone again through injury. What the difference in Rob Carney over the last twelve months is he's been fit. And he's been playing regularly. And he's been and, managed as well. And his performances, his performances have been excellent. So, 
Uh, it's up to somebody else to take the jersey off him, but based on his performances, no, not at the moment. So where are we with which Smith, Gavin? Is he... So yeah, have we a long and glorious future ahead? We went to the strategic. Or is that re- dicey now? There was a few of us at the strategic review last week, um, and they went through this big booklet and they dealt with the women's action plan and all that, which is the women's sevens action plan, by the way. But um, we dealt with everything, and then Philip. That's, that's another podcast, Gavin. We'll yeah, to, we'll get to that soon. That's, that's another world. <laughs> uh, but Philip Brown sat down, and then David Newsafora after him. It was great. It was good to get the access on him, and we were like, "All right, Joe Schmidt, contract negotiations. Where are you at?" And uh, they were like. You got to answer their question in some shape or form. They're going, okay, end of November, early December, which means the end of December, by the way. Mm. We'll have some kind of a read on this. And um, so it's pressed on it going, like England are hunting for a Joe Schmidt mm. now, right now, to replace Eddie Jones in 2020. Um, the All Blacks, we don't know. Um, France would give him the keys to the kingdom and then ask him to figure out their club system. They'd all take him, you know what I mean? Mm. And he does want another challenge at some stage. Right. Um, and he's not going to just go retire. <laughs> we know what this, mm. this guy is. He's a coach forever now and he's still relatively young. He's very young, yeah. He has to make a decision. Um, he's got total control here. Um, but Philip Brown was Which like... Which he likes. Yeah. yeah. Joe, Joe likes the control. He does the not control. get total control in England no. and he does not get total control yeah. in France. And in New Zealand, it's um, he does get total control but he's going to have to speak to the media all the time and he's going to have to play <laughs> a certain way. You know right. what I mean? Like you can't just go uh, Conor Murray box kicking until we. That's not the all black way. He'll yeah. be, he'll have to alter himself. But so, I think he. I think he likes it here. I think he likes us. You know. I think he. He's done so much. And like Warren Gatlin did a ten year job, but when it was put to Philip Brown, he was like, the indications that were given were he goes he is indispensable. He's not indispensable. We can move on without him. You know what I mean. Um, and we were like, really? Oh, okay. And like the Sundays lean that way and uh, about it when they're writing about it. And um, maybe that was a message to Joe from his higher ups for the f- a little kind of nudge going, just so you know, you, you know. have to make a decision. But um, it's, I think he won't go simply because where do you go? What do you think, John? Um, I think if, if you're looking for um, inklings or conspiracy theories, you look at the the way that the press release was announced where it said yeah, the, the Irish management uh, revealed the squad. The Irish week. coaching group. Correct. So suddenly it's not Joe Schmidt it's anymore. It's the Irish coaching group. So <laughs> if you want to read too much into that, I think the... the Lions, sorry, I didn't mention the Lions. To, to kind of cut through all this, you would say that given a preference, the players, the IRFU and the supporters would prefer for Joe Schmidt to stay on. He's done a fantastic job with Ireland. During his time, he did a fantastic job with Leinster before that. So you've got probably the top coach in the world and you would like, I think they would like him to stay on. It's up to him what he wants to do. There are family considerations as there have been every time his contract has come up and he will make his decision. If you look at the tone of of what has been said recently, you might be slightly suspicious that there is, you know, he may not decide to stay after November. Give him a two-year contract. Andy Farrell takes over uh, for the Six Nations of the Lions series and Schmidt takes on, goes, goes, beats up sorts out Razzy Rasmus as South Africans with the, as Lions coach in 2021. So what is the time scale? What, his, his current contract ends... After the World Cup in after Japan. After the World Cup in Japan. Yeah. So they, they, that's what you mean. It gets sorted yeah. in the next month. Well, and so. like the IRFU in their press release about here, we've got, we've just so you know, we signed Conor Murray uh, in September. Like six weeks after they signed them, they kept it under wraps, which only damaged Conor Murray. So maybe they've done their business already. Maybe they're doing what they normally do and looked at the media. And There's no suggestion anywhere that... that for coming from from the Irish side, that there's any sort of second guessing here. Everybody wants him to stay. There's no 
no no sense that that you know would be better off without him or anything like that. No, no, no. no. I think it's been proven. Yeah, over and over. So it so it'll be purely down to his. He, as usual, has total control. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, he's going to get paid what he wants. I, I'm sure they, I'm, I don't know what he gets paid, but I'm sure he gets paid extremely handsomely. Um, I, I think just the Lions thing is a challenge, although it's gone ridiculous. It's gone. It's been condensed into five weeks sorry, now. Touch Does he have any interest in the Lions? It never. He's never struck me as having no. the slightest, because he's been offered assistant well, coaching many, yeah, yeah, no, a like, couple of times. Take, like, no, his last job as an assistant coach was in Claremont mm. in 2009. That was... When he, what I mean, that was when he said school's out, I'm in charge from now on. <laughs> but what I mean is that there's been no sense of him kind of, you know, dewy eyed over the magic of the Lions or no. anything like that. No, but he does like the idea of uh, his problem would be access as well. That's one thing he like, he, he has turned the Ireland squad into a camp. There's camps go on that we don't even know about. Um, can you imagine him in charge of the Lions? A Lions tour that's going to take place over five weeks, mm. loads of Lions players, England players mm. until the very last week. In fact, you'll be. Probably boarding a plane at Heathrow Airport. Would have looking out the window and seeing twelve of your players sitting in the departure lounge because they've got to go on a different flight. There's and he'd just, have to deal with the English media. That would be, it would melt his head, and you wouldn't blame him for that either. So the All Blacks might give him the head coaching job. They might not promote from within like they do, and like the whole thing of Foster gets it next. They might not do that. They might just go Schmidt and Scott Robertson. There you go. You're the All Blacks. I coach. think the other thing to point out about Joe Schmidt as well is that he cuts his cloth depending on his resources. So even though people have been critical of, at times, of the way he plays and it can be, you know, a reliance on box kicking and territory and possession, you look at what's effective. And he always looks at what's effective. And talking to Johnny Sexton there last week, he was saying he brings something new every time they come back, come back into camp for the start of a new campaign, a new season. He brings new ideas. He spends hours and hours and hours looking at Lots and lots and lots of rugby. Mike Ross brings it in. in book. Yeah. And then they sit down. He goes, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do this." That's def- different. So Ireland evolve. He ev- he makes sure that his teams evolve. Excellent. The the series starts on Saturday against Italy. The four games. Once by the time we get to the end of it, we'll be a bit of the wiser as to where we all stand and uh, the beginning of an exciting year. Younger listeners, I, I like to pretend that we have younger listeners, Gav, but uh, younger, younger listeners, listeners. <laughs> younger listeners uh, will not be familiar with this next topic. We have Neil Cotter, uh, who's a news journalist from uh, the Irish Sun, uh, but uh, more pertinently here, he's a Dublin football supporter and an author who has written about uh, Dublin in the bad old times, i.e., Late 90s, early 2000s. Thanks for coming in, Neil. No problem. Thanks for having me. Younger listeners won't be uh, familiar with the subject. Uh, They will be shocked to find that there was a time when Dublin not only went a year without winning a Leinster title, but went seven years without winning a Leinster title. Uh, And this is not in the dim reaches of time. This is in our lifetimes and indeed your lifetime. Uh, so your book is Dublin, the Chaos Years. Mm. Uh, so it's essentially in that period between the All-Irelands of 1995 and 2011. That's right, yeah. And just everything that kind of could have gone wrong did go wrong. And the seven years felt like 27 years for Dublin mm. fans. But you just couldn't see it happening today. Even going one year now, I think would be quite remarkable. But 1995, uh, they won the All-Ireland. They could have won three or four yes. in the years leading up to that point and uh, a lot of the book a lot the start of the book there's a lot of uh, bitterness and, and anger and resentment that 
from some of the players who'd been around that they didn't win more than the one that mm. they did win. Um, and I think one of the stars of the, of, of the book, certainly in the first few chapters, is Keith Barr because he just really said it, said it as, as it was. He, 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 sure did, did. he didn't have time for any... Uh, any young players coming in who didn't, who he felt didn't have much to offer yeah. Dublin, you know, because he'd been around for so long. And of course, I forgot as well that he also lost a lot of Dublin titles with Aaron Zyle as well. They got to a lot of finals mm. in, in the nineteen nineties. I think they lost three. So he was he was marked by by defeat, and a lot of that Dublin squad that won in ninety five was marked by defeat. So it was kind of a bitter dressing room in many ways, mm. and it was a, a fairly um, tough place to be if you were new. And uh, you weren't used to this type of thing. Yeah, and I think people looking in from the outside would be, you know, vaguely familiar with, you know, Pat O'Neill didn't stay on, Mickey Whelan came in, uh, did things, you know, brought a, uh, came in with his own ideas, as they say. Uh, the older guys in the restaurant rooms didn't really chime with it, and a couple of years of of uh, discord sort of followed there, and. I mean, I remember, I read that part of the book and went, yeah, this this is really interesting, you know, for for how any time an, an all, all Ireland winning team kind of disintegrates that quickly, um, is it's interesting. But at the same time, that was an older team, like that was a team that whose whose natural cycle was probably coming to towards its end, anyway. Um, and the fascinating years that the the that I wanted to read about were, you know, sort of. You're 97 to 2004, that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, when they, 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 you know, they still had players, man. Like, they still had, you know, J.O., you know, still had Jim Gavin, all these guys around. Johnny McGee. Johnny McGee, Kieran Whelan. I mean, I, I, I thought that, you know, I nearly thought the book should be called A, a Lament for Poor Kieran Whelan. The Whelan years. Poor Whelan came in in 96 and Remember left in 2010. Because he'd go out of games and people would go look at him go missing for times. And, and yet he would. spark. And yeah. he used to get so much grief because he wasn't dominant for 70 minutes, you know. It's because of what he could do when he was when he was in command of the And game. yet it was those years that I that I was fascinated with, you know, like the, the sort of the Tommy Carr years into the Tommy Lyons years, you know, that, that just... Because however... However bad things are, you know, Dublin ought to be winning an odd, the odd Leinster title in there. They they should, and but Tommy had a ferocious job. Mm. He took over. That was, yeah, that's he, what he, I find fascinating. He, he was only 36, and he'd never managed, he'd never even coached a, a Tommy club Carr like, now, yeah. Tommy mm. Carr, yeah, and he was playing, he was still playing for Luke and Sarsfields mm. when, when the call came, and you know, he, was in the st- he was in the stands in Parnell Park when Mickey Whelan was being booed off, and he was probably thinking to himself, I could actually do this job, and it, most people will know that he 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 was a, he was a senior official in the in the defence forces. Mm. So he would have taken he would have taken troops over to the Lebanon, and he was he knew how to handle troops. Mm. So he thought at that time that maybe that was all the training he needed to handle Dublin players as well. But I think han- handling troops and handling <laughs> Dublin players is an entirely different ball game. That's gas. But it took. He, see, the thing is, he, he he did a good job in the end, but it took him too long to do it. Right. And I think that the players' view is that Tommy could have done in in two years what he what he eventually achieved in four. Right. All I remember from his time is just on the sideline in Semple Stadium, just belting into the touch judge. Touch judge or ref or both. Oh, linesman. Linesman. Yeah, linesman. linesman. At the oh, yes. time. Jesus I'm, Christ. Sorry, I'm, I'm stuck in rugby season. Apologies. God Almighty. <laughs> touch judge. I'm going to say kick off in a minute. Get get out. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Oh, you've ruined my car point now. Still, it just it, like it felt like he'd lost control. You know. Yeah, I think he might have been he might have been sent off for some some words he had in that game two thousand and one. But also, people will remember Morris Fitzgerald's mm. point that equalised for Kerry that day. It's probably one of the most famous points mm. it's ever been. Because all the dubs tried to hit him so hard when he came on. That's right. <laughs> and I got stuck in Port Leash on the way down. Oh, you know, yeah. was you and everybody camp. else. Yeah, because yeah, we left late. Uh, so I watched it yeah. in the Heritage or somewhere like that. And uh, yeah, but uh, the thing about Tommy was he he was so full on, you know, he was in Morris's ear when he was trying mm. to stick out. And, and he's st- he's complaining. How many years ago was it now? 17 years ago, he's still complaining. He's like, Morris took extra yards. <laughs> 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 the, the ball did not go over the sideline at that point. He says, if you watch it. <laughs> so, but I... This is the, these are the type of things that must go over your head when when you haven't achieved, I guess. And this book is a lot of, is is about uh, non achievement or about failure, um, for the most part. But the thing is, like Dublin were always in the top four or five yeah, teams in the it. country. They yeah. were never that far away. Um, I think th- towards the end of Tommy Carr's time, it was obvious that they maybe they had good players, but they didn't have the natural forwards that mm. Kerry had or Galway had at that time. They tried to win games on adrenaline half the time, you know. Yeah, and the, uh, more yeah, often blowing they, teams away. They did, yeah, yeah they, they did. And the comebacks against Kerry were, were kind of famous. You know, you mm. players who clearly weren't at the same level as the Kerry team were just chipping away at leads and you know almost doing it. And but that's the whole problems that they're always almost doing yeah. it. They did uh, it. And for you as a fan in those days, you know, it would not surprise you, of, of course, that for, for the rest of us, well, for, I suppose you were a fan too, Gavin, but like for the rest of us, you know, the, there was always a great parallel to be struck between, you know, the Dublin football team and the England football team, you know, you know, real hype jobs, you know, going out to the first really good team they met, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and of course, we can <laughs> we can look back and uh, you know cry our tears for you now, Neil. Like you were on the receiving end of all that. Like how how was it in those days? Like what did each year start with with the the hope that it that it would change, or or was it a kind of a fatalistic time? I think the comparisons with England were probably fair. Mm. It's actually the heat on the managers as well. Yeah. yeah, it's not very palatable to think about it to compare the county that you love and follow with with the English <laughs> soccer team. But uh, but as well, like Tommy Lyons didn't do him any favors by I think he said something like they were the Manchester United. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, boxing. We know what he was yeah. trying to do, but it's not it's not the comparison that you want to make. Mm. But yeah, we did start out every season believing that this was our year. I can't remember a time, maybe 2004 for Tommy Lyons' last season in charge where they thought fan, supporters would not have felt they, they were they were close because 2003 had been such a disaster, especially coming after 2002, yes. which some people would remember was... 2002 felt remarkable. like the start of something. Yes. It just wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> like in 2006, I, I would love to know when you, did you ever give up? Because in 2006, after Kieran McDonald's point, I remember walking out of Crow Park going, I need to stop getting so emotional about this. <laughs> I need to stop letting this dictate my mood because it's just going to be a pain forever, you know? That was the game that kind of sticks in the, in the players' throats a little bit because... In hindsight, Kerry were better than Dublin were, and Tyrone were better than Dublin were. So losing to Kerry and Tyrone is there was no disgrace in that. Mm. However, the manner of some of the defeats was maybe disgraceful, but there's no disgrace in actually going out to those teams. But the Mayo, that Mayo team, were not better than Dublin, and and the players know it. And Mayo players probably the know it as well. Final showed it. Yeah, well, absolutely, they had a they had a shocker, but um, it, it was again, it was it was a symptom of of. 
the kind of illness that was there under Peter Caffrey in, the, in that, you know, it was a game they should have won. They mm. thought they'd won it. Uh, Ray Cosgrove says in the book how he came off. He was high five with the management. It was kind of like, well done. We were six mm. points up at that point. And then Dublin lost control of the game and there was, they had no way of, of stopping it. And it was just like a, a green and red tie just engulfed them and they didn't know what to do. But the thing, like one of the, a Wexford player from the time, John Hegarty, he spoke in the book as well because he was involved with Wexford from the late part of the 90s all the way up either as a player or as a coach so he and Dublin played Wexford a lot in those days mm. um, but he was saying you know there was no default position for Dublin he he could see when he was on the pitch he could see the panic in their eyes when things weren't going their way mm. and it would take a monster point or a, a goal from J.O. out of nowhere to, to, to calm them down because they didn't have this they couldn't just go do Keanu's. five minutes of lateral hand pass. Didn't have Keanu Sullivan. Or exactly. Kieran Kilkenny, yeah. <laughs> Kieran Kilkenny was too young. <laughs> yeah, he could have. Still could have Still could have got four or five. You could have given him twenty minutes. Yeah. There uh, was a really interesting thing. Mick O'Keefe, who's in here for the Al Business Podcast in that time, his quote about um, the Cro- chemical Crokes lads weren't really seen as Dubs lads by some of the uh, that more hardened lads in the panel. Yeah. What well, talk to us about all that, will you? Well, Crokes had kind of they, they'd made a breakthrough um, at county level in the early 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 nineties, so they were starting to go very well. And of course, if you're Keith Barrett, Aaron's Isle, uh, or any of the, the Isles lads, you're not going to be too happy with the Croaks lads coming through. Anyway, but the early Croaks teams were dominated by country players. So there would have been a few dubs, but a lot of lads from the country thrown in there as well. So of course that was a bit, you know, they weren't seen as dubs. But the lads then who who did come in to join the panel might have been a bit more softly spoken than some of the other lads. Yeah, right in Slorgan and put it that way. And if you're from Slorgan, you're probably going to speak a little bit differently to the lads from Finglas <laughs> and Ballymorning. Which doesn't yeah, seem to be, a, which is definitely not a problem anymore, because they all still speak 100% that way. You know? It's not a problem anymore. It's yeah. like I mean, the, the 2011 fullback line lads speak fairly softly now. The right? oh, Dublin yeah. panel, yeah, that fullback line in 2011, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they called it the poshest fullback full line, back line in the world. Yeah, it was. Um, but and it wasn't a problem then. But Kilmacook Croaks. Uh, word used to get back to the players in Kilmacook Croaks about players who'd been in the panel before that and they hadn't had a happy time at Dublin. There was a little bit of bullying going on, mm. a little bit of testing their res- or their, testing their metal and Kilmacook lads would probably fail it and the stories would go back. And, and again, Johnny McGee though, like, he's a Kilmacook Croaks lad, you know. He wasn't your stereotypical no. uh, Kilmacook Croaks lad and he's the one who came in and, and, and in his own that words was kicked the, the door sense, down. That was definitely the sense that I got from the book, you know, that... that Apart from anything else, you know, wh- wh- whatever about um, clicks or whatever about, you know, managers making wrong calls or, you know, games going against those Dublin teams, like uh, plenty of times it seemed like a not particularly pleasant place to be, those Dublin dressing rooms. There was a very, very a kind of a hard, hard, hard edge to it. Yeah, it wasn't. And like you, you couldn't imagine it today, but there were times they used to train at Santry. And the Trinity Sports oh, yeah, Grounds yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah, and this, yeah. If you've ever been out there as well, the, the dressing rooms are small enough anyway, but if you weren't part of that 95 click, you could go and train in, in, or go and change in the other dressing room. Yeah. That's just the way it was, and you kind of had to earn your place. Yeah. And it was a hard, hard environment. Mm. for, and, and it's kind of a one-chance-and-you're-out type of thing. And I, I often wonder about Cosgrove, for example, who finally made his breakthrough in 2002. Mm-hmm. But he was around in 96, and he was kicking monster points in training, not getting anywhere close to the panel because the players believe that maybe Mickey Whelan was influenced by people. But he had six, that's six years. But in the, in the meantime, he wasn't encouraged 
exactly. by any of the lads who were there. He wasn't yeah. developed. He yeah. was just good there and went do and it or else own, get lost. Yeah. And eventually he did go for two years after he was came on as a, a sub in, in, in Leinster final under Tommy Carr and he was told to go in at centre forward and Jim Gavin, who was playing, uh, said, no, you go into the corner, I'll go out centre forward. And Ray didn't get a kick for 20 minutes. He was taken off again. He didn't play again for two years after that. But I wonder how happy Jim would be yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if somebody said that, yeah. Directly yeah. contradicting See how long that would last. It is funny. Um, I've had this theory for, for, uh, for a while. And I think, and it's all, all but confirmed, actually, reading this. Um, if you look at the, the, Dub- the Dublin setup now, you know, the driving forces in it are Jim Gavin, Jason Sherlock, Declan Darcy present for all of those years year after year of looking around them and going look at the potential we have and look how far off it we are and Bertie helped though didn't he okay okay no but we'll get to that <laughs> we'll get to that but what I'm ta- what I'm saying is like the the sort of eternal empire that is ongoing at the minute you know four in a row they're unbackable to, be, to, to make it five in a row mm. that's driven by guys who lived these years and I always get the sense of them and not, you know, of course, they, they never say anything even approaching this. But I always get the sense of, of the three of them, you know, we're never going back to that. Dublin are never to go back to those days. And don't forget Gilroy as well would have got the whole start mm. of the whole ball rolling. Mm. He was heavily steeped in 95 mm. as well. And that's the impression I get as well. And certainly it's, the, it's players who would have played with them would point to would make that exact same point that you just made. They said, "Would you look what they went through, and look what, and then Jim? I don't know if Jim ever stepped away from player under mm-hmm. twenty one. He's been there all or less went straight through, from yeah. player to twenty. They actually overlapped, didn't they? Because Tommy Lyons threw him on the Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he finished up. I I think he finished in oh one, and Tommy Lyons won the twenty ones in oh two when Jim was involved. But I, as far as I know, he hasn't even stepped away for for a break in all that time. It takes ferocious commitment, mm. first of all. But yeah, when you're you've seen all this, you've seen this this defeat, this misery. And I know I'm banging on about misery and all that. I mean, you're, fr- you're from Monaghan. You know what misery is all about. I'm, I'm talking yeah. about not every summer. I'm talking about not winning fair. a few. At least no, titles, the misery yeah. doesn't happen till August now. So <laughs> yeah. it's different. That's true. But absolutely, yeah, hundred percent agree. It's they were they were marked by their failures. In, but in, in fairness, the, the, and the, but there's a, there's a slight difference in that where when you're coming from where I come from, it's not expected. You know, and all Ireland is ne- never expected. A final appearance isn't really ever expected. The odd Ulster, one, a couple of Ulsters every decade and were grand mm. uh, to a certain extent. Whereas going seven years without a Leinster title uh, as a Dublin <laughs> inter-county football team, like, that can never, that should never happen, you know? And for one manager to be there for four years of that. Mm. And I'll imagine that. In the middle of it. Offaly won one, Leash won one, Westmead won one, you know. Leinster. I think go well for Tommy Lyons. No, but like Tommy Carr, no... Dublin manager would get four years now. Not without, at all. Without a, a like that, that, But that's like so interesting because like that seemed like you would think that that's fifty years ago mm. when you're talking about that. Like, can you imagine Westmeads winning a Leinster title today? Leash winning a Leinster title today? You know, it's just it's what, it's, it's what, what changed the game? What changed behind the scenes? Isn't though, the game poorer for it? Yeah, far poorer. Like, I mean, even well, as of course a, we think that. What do you? Well, think? I, I'm well. I'm a supporter first and foremost. I'd love but to see Mead and Kildare properly get their act together. Yeah. yeah, so would I. I'm not saying I'd like to see Dublin beat in, in 
in, in Leinster finals or to go years without winning one. But could you imagine the the, the improvement of the game if if Kildare finally made a breakthrough or yeah. if Mead came back? They're football counties, like yeah, exactly. And you want to see that. And th- the reason I wrote this book is because I was standing on Hill 16. It was during a, a 2016 uh, Leinster match, and I think we were up by 15 points, and I was bored. Mm. bored out of my mind so I just started thinking about the old days which is what we do when you get to a certain age you <laughs> default mode as you think about the old days and so that's what I did and that's where the, the kind of the book came from but um, were you asking me about behind the scenes yeah like uh, people know but you dug into it I imagine like change the Coslow is obviously huge um, his impact and Bertie Ahern and there's, there's a couple of characters and not necessarily Bertie obviously but there's a couple of characters in the background that well Bertie played a, a huge part and again that's probably not very palatable to a lot of people either but um, there's a very real sense amongst some of the clubs in Dublin that they would have gone to the wall in the 90s yeah I read that and I'm, I don't know if well it's easy to say now that I don't buy that because mm. you know it's so it's such a like it's such a thriving absolutely thriving enterprise now but I mean like that's well, this it's before, interesting it that they have that all the lot of money everybody yeah. got the lot of money obviously and there's, mm. everywhere you go now around Ireland there's fantastic facilities in, mm. in, in a lot of the clubs but in the 1990s when Dublin were winning that All-Ireland in 95 say it, it was it was masking what was a very precarious situation I mean it, it was the kids weren't playing the game the schools were in decline there was nobody coaching and it, John Bailey and Bertie between them they got the money or whatever so rightly or wrongly they got the money and what's done is done but that money saved a lot of clubs from going to the wall now it took a lot of buy-in from the clubs as well because and they schools. and schools because yeah, it, it was a big thing. That, that's yeah. how they got that's how they justified it was mm. was to save the schools rather than the clubs but um, now I've spoken to a few officials in, in clubs in Dublin now who feel that they would have gone to the wall around in the late nineties, early part two thousand. What had like, it not what been? F- what fills it? Soccer clubs, rugby clubs f- would have filled the gap in those communities, kind of a thing. Or was it that bad of a thing? Or it's it's just the kids. The kids weren't playing. So like it's it's early intervention, I guess. You mm. want to get kids playing from an early age, and they weren't in the schools because they couldn't get the the coaching. The teachers, in Bertie's words, that you know he said forty years ago when the bell rang kids would run you over to get out. Now it's the teachers would run yeah. you over to get out. And he said, so the teachers weren't coaching the kids in as greater numbers. I guess the Christian brothers yeah. were in decline, massive decline. But even with the clubs, I remember I heard you on uh, some other interview you were doing, you were saying like you grew up playing for Nafina mm. and you were like, when you were playing under 12, there wasn't an under 13 team. No. There wasn't another no, there wasn't. 11 or an under 10 and team. My younger brother was no. playing with us because he didn't have it. And like I live, I live around the corner from the Fianna now. Like you go past there on a Saturday, like you, you like the, there are thousands. It's well, it's probably one of the biggest clubs in Ireland, yeah. and it's a, an absolutely amazing what's happened there. Yeah. And again, that all stems, that all began. The the seeds of that mm. were, were were planted in the late part of nineteen nineties. So they needed that money. They got so it started. They got it started. But and and this is what we need to talk about, Neil. You've ruined it for everybody now. Isn't that it? Isn't it? The Dubs have absolutely destroyed this thing now for everybody else. Because by doing so well. <laughs> Change the rules, maybe. Change the rules. <laughs> it's I mean, okay. So I jest. The rabbit's out of the hat. So yeah. what, what what do you do? The rules change. I don't know if the rules change is going to work, but uh, Dublin are a machine but Dublin use the money properly mm. that's the thing now I know they've received so much extra funding but everybody talks about the money that Dublin get but 
don't forget, I mean, ha- that, the money that Bertie secured was for coaching. Mm. Then you've got the commercial side of things and the, the sponsorship and the fundraising. I that think, Mayo are very, very mix good those at. things up. They, they mix it up all the time. Yeah. It's two, two entirely different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Mayo raise more money than Dublin do mm-hmm. through sponsorship. Uh, Kerry are very effective fundraisers as well. Tyrone are very effective fundraisers. So um, what are you supposed to do? Just tell them to stop raising funds? I, know, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I must say, I, I find the book fascinating and really, really, really enjoyable and um, it's definitely completely worthwhile for, for, for people to read because I do I do feel, you know, there are there are times when people kind of dismiss the Dublin thing a little bit too readily. Now, I also feel that there are plenty of Dublin people who dismiss everybody else's concerns far too readily at all, but I guess that's the, that's the modern world. But I think a book like this, I think an awful lot of people should read it and get a proper sense of, of, of how those times were and how unlikely these times looked back then. And how unlikely it is that they'll ever go back to the chaos years, yeah. You would imagine, so I can't see it going back yeah, there I think it, soon. It, Dublin aren't going to regress anytime soon, so it's up to everybody else to kind of step up. Yeah. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. Neil Cotter, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks, me, you're right. And that's us. Uh, thank you very much, Gavin. My pleasure. Thank you, Declan, behind the desk. Uh, thank you to John O'Sullivan, who's in earlier doing the rugby, and uh, we'll see you all next week.